Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Tom Seema, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law. This is episode 17, which addresses the issue of athlete mental health. I'm joined by three special guests. First, Tiana Bartoletta, who is a three-time Olympic gold medalist in track and field, a lifestyle influencer and a published author. Second, Dr. Josephine Perry, who is a chartered psychologist who works in sport, amongst other areas. Josie recently released an audiobook titled The Ten Pillars of Success. Last but not least, I'm also joined by Callum Skinner. Callum is also an Olympic gold medalist, this time in track cycling. He now pursues various business interests and also acts as a representative for Global Athlete. So, having introduced our guests, let's begin the discussion. Let's start things with a very recent event, which is that Shelby Rogers, a US tennis player, was knocked out of the US Open earlier this week. And she said, when talking to the media afterwards about that defeat, that she kind of wished that social media didn't exist. Do you think that social media has a negative impact on the mental health of athletes? And if I can come to you first of all, Cam, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it it definitely can have a, a negative impact Just to be an open book from the start, I've suffered from uh, clinical depression and and anxiety and thankfully doing a lot better now. But I I wouldn't have ever really said that social media played a a particular role in that. I think on on the whole, social media is is quite a positive thing for athletes. It allows them to to make additional income, allows them to build their own brands. And especially in the in the UK system, where you're so restricted in terms of your commercial opportunities, it, it can be a, a lifeline to a lot of athletes. Having said that, I have been a victim of of trolling, both from Russians uh, and uh, Chinese, because I stepped into two different uh, doping issues that happened in those respective countries, and also from British fans at the Olympic Games. The Leave campaign for the uh, European referendum made this big flashy video that basically said. Look how well our athletes are doing. We'll obviously do amazingly outside of the European Union. I very politely said thanks, but no thanks. It's got nothing to do with that. And then the comments on the Daily Mail online um, went ballistic. And they said, like, he's a traitor. They should take his medals off him, all of that kind of stuff. But on the whole, I've always kind of seen the, not the funny side, but kind of never really taken it seriously. If it comes from a verified person, you know, it would probably impact me a bit differently. But when it's anonymous comments or anonymous, Twitter feeds or Instagram, I think that's where it's easier to, to brush it off. You know, it's difficult to respect a voice where there's no name or image attached to it. Tiana, what's your, what's your view? Do you come from the same place or maybe a slightly different one? I think that it can have a negative impact. And I think that we already have a tenuous relationship uh, with social media because in a lot of ways, our sponsors need us to be really good at social media. Like there's a side of our sport that's like, make yourself marketable, you know, like build your following, care about this. And yet those same people tend to lash out when you don't perform well and all of these things. So there's, there's very much this desire to, to please these invisible people in a lot of ways, because you almost feel like you're leveraging their attention and their loyalty to you for to support your athletic career. So the relationship is very complicated. And Josie, last but not least, if I come to you, do you have anything to add on, on social media or social media related issues? 
Yeah, so I actually did a big piece of research on how media impacts Olympic, Paralympic athletes. And what was really interesting is they were actually very much split. And there was a group who really thrived on it. They valued it. They were growing their brand. Some would like, until there's a chat on social media about an event, it doesn't feel like I'm there. So actually, I kind of need it to get amped up for competition, to feel like we're getting going. And there was another group who just found it incredibly debilitative and hated it, stayed off as much as they could, would feel difficult every time they had to do anything for sponsors. And they found it very intrusive. And so there was a real split between this, yeah, I love it, I need it, brilliant, I'm all up for it, and that keep me off that thing. I don't want to be there. And the one that really got me was one of the interviewees was an Olympic gold medalist who said they came out of the medal ceremony absolutely on a high, scrolled through all their messages, had like hundreds and hundreds of brilliant messages and supportive ones, and one that focused on their appearance. And they could still tell me three or four years later what that comment was. And our brains are designed for negative stuff. Our brains are designed to remember the negatives to keep us safe. But when you have those things being filtered through social media, it can be very powerful and it sticks there for a long time. What would you say, perhaps Callum and Tiana in particular, to the people who say, well, if you don't like social media, if you don't like the exposure, if you don't like the engagement with people, I say people, they might be bots on some occasions, then go off social media. You know, you have a choice. That's not my view for the avoidance of doubt, but that's what some commentators might say. And what would you say in response? Would you say that's just unrealistic given how sponsorship works? Yeah, I'd say it's 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 unrealistic in in the modern age on the whole, unless you're a big enough profile where you can have someone to to manage it on your behalf. And and I know Simone Biles got a little bit of criticism for being active in social media when she was absent from those events at the Olympic Games. But I think she made quite a balanced decision on the whole. I think if she stops meeting sponsor obligations, it can you know be seen as a, as another failure in another way that you're letting people down. So there's a huge amount of pressure to keep that up. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's only so much I can do as a person who runs my account to, you know, protect my energy and block from that. I'm like really good with the block button and restricting people. I do feel like that's my space. And so I try to do a good job of curating what goes on there. So if I see it, I'll I'll delete and mute and block as necessary because Part of my brand is that I am a safe space to share things and I don't need that. I don't, I don't, everyone says ignore the trolls. I don't ignore them, but I don't engage with them either. So I do try to be proactive in eliminating that. It's impossible. So I think it's also extremely unfair for basically those same people criticizing you online to say, if you don't like it, get offline, (laughs) you know? So it's kind of like, it's always those people. Sure. um, I mean, you wouldn't. No one would would say to someone who was abused on the street, oh, well, don't walk on the street. And it seems to me that that Twitter is really, it's a public space. Um, So it's it's not very different at all. Okay, so moving on, we've had more focus on athletes' uh, mental health in in recent months and recent weeks um, than we've seen in the past. And... My question is, are more athletes struggling with poor mental health now, for whatever reason that might be? Or is it simply the case that athletes are now speaking more openly 
about the issues and struggles that they faced. So if I could ask you, first of all, Josie, what, what you think? I'd kind of say it's both. So not necessarily athletes struggling more, just everybody struggling more after the last 18 months. We've had 18 months of not having proper autonomy, of having to live in ambiguity all of the time. So I think everybody's level of base kind of mental health is probably a bit lower than we used to. And that affects athletes just as much as anybody else. But I do also feel that people are talking about it more as well. And so when people come out with so-and-so's talked about this and somebody else has talked about this and you're like, that stuff all happened before. It's just they talked about physical injuries to cover it up. And and it's not just in, in sport. I work a lot on the stage with actors and they would have very similar things. Somebody might go off with an injury. They just weren't mentioning that it was a mental health issue rather than a physical one. So I, I think it's both. Would you agree, Karen and Tiana? Yeah, I've, I've done it myself. You know, at the, the Commonwealth Games in uh, Gold Coast in 2018, yeah, my mental health took a real nosedive and um, I got my coaches and, and uh, support staff to cover for me and say that I had a, a stomach bug because it just didn't feel like something that I could be open about. I know that um, Michael Phelps has talked about doing a, a similar thing before in a, in a different situation. And I, I guess that's where you have a bit of an overarching view I get a little bit confused why people get so upset that certain athletes are are open about it because I think what makes sport enjoyable and what makes it fun to follow is that you you can live and breathe the stories that athletes are sharing quite openly on social media and their journeys and their comebacks and I'm sitting there and I'm kind of thinking well what would you prefer would you prefer that they lie to you about what they were facing or would you prefer to follow their journey and and actually seek some inspiration or or have a kind of new talking point that moves society forward as well as sport so i i get really confused by a lot of the negativity that is associated with athletes speaking openly about mental health yes i agree i think if there's a silver lining to look for over the last 18 months is that we all finally collectively realized as a human race that nobody's okay. <laughs> like None of us, nobody's doing all right right now. Right. And so that makes it just a little less scary to finally say out loud, you know what? I'm not okay because we are seeing, you know, all of us going through the same situation. One of the, insidious side effects of mental health is that it always almost always makes you feel like it's just you going through that thing. Like I am by myself. I am depressed. I am in this state all alone and nobody will understand me and no one cares. And I think what we're starting to see now, especially after the last 18 months, and especially as we have a few brave athletes front and center saying, you know what, I'm not okay, is that more and more people are understanding that this is a collective experience, unique to you, of course, but not just happening to you. And so I think as we continue to talk about this in all the ways, big or small, like it doesn't just have to be, you know, the weight of gold HBO documentary to, to have these conversations. It, it, it literally is small things. Well, it wasn't small to her, but saying, I can't do this press conference today. I can't do this or drawing boundaries in your everyday life. I think more and more people will start to understand. I'll move on again now. Do you think that elite level athletes are particularly susceptible to mental health problems because of the pressures of competing at the highest level? 
I tackle that a little bit differently. And it kind of brings me to a bit of an argument that I had with my, my team at the time. I think athletes are some of the most, whatever you want to call it, mentally strong, mentally resilient people in the world, basically. Like, I think no one gets to a certain level um, of competition without having that kind of fortitude, I guess. So I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make was when, when I was unwell um, and suffering and, and tried to ask for a break from my, my team, I was immediately kind of made to feel as if I was kind of mentally weak, I guess, instead of just being unwell for a period of time. So I, I guess that kind of cordons off the, the athlete population. I think they're extremely resilient. And then it brings us on to the second point about whether the environment of being an athlete, especially when you get up to the higher levels, becomes uh, becomes a population that's more susceptible. I think I think that's personally that's difficult for me to answer. I've been on the on the other side. I've had a day job for a couple of years now. And I'd say there's there's definitely pros and cons. Like I Day to day, I work in in sales, and I see people beat themselves up inside from from not making for not making their quota for that month. And on the other hand, I'm sitting there and thinking, like, why are you stressed out? Like, for the first time in my life, I've actually got employment rights. They can't just get rid of me tomorrow. Like, I could have a bad six months, and I'll still be here. And when I was an athlete, you have your axe hanging over your head the entire time. So yeah, I guess in the loan from from my limited experience from being on the other side, most of my time has been as being an athlete. There are some unique pressures that come with with being an athlete that can make you feel particularly vulnerable time and time again. I'd massively back that up, that there's there are pressures and stresses that athletes have that most of us will never recognize. And we don't have to make the kind of investment in our lives in a way that an athlete will. And so it's not that there are any biological or physiological reasons why an athlete would be more susceptible. But there are stresses that are going to be coming at you and you have to learn to cope with. And sometimes you won't be able to because there are just too many of them and you haven't yet learned the skills to handle those. And that's when it will tip into anxiety. But I also think there's an additional element that most of us kind of regular people that when we're feeling some stress or worry, our way of coping with that is to go out for a run or to get on our bike. And when you're an athlete and you're already doing 20 hours of training a week, you can't use that as your kind of coping mechanism. So you have lost one of the biggest coping mechanisms that the rest of us have. So it can feel much more intense. Yeah, it's like the perfect storm of being in a completely results or outcome based career. A lot of times our success is externally outsourced or defined, you know, like by sponsors or the team, or we depend on a coach or your teammates. And so there's a lot of where we went into a situation often feeling empowered, uh, we, we're not always, it's not always an independent journey and we're at the whims of the coach and what they decide this week and your teammates and how they bother to show up. And yeah, the coping mechanisms are very different. I, I would sometimes go to the track, you know, and that was my sanctuary. That was my place to work out things that were happening in my life. But when track started to go wrong, it was like, I have nowhere to go. I have I have nowhere to put this pain. I have no way to work this out. And so, yeah, this is just a perfect storm of extremes for athletes, which makes us more susceptible. And building on that and building on what you said in particular, perhaps, Callum, do you think that sports teams, sports clubs, perhaps particularly sports governing bodies who 
tend to have more money and a bit more power to do things. Do you think they should be doing more to support athletes who are struggling with their mental health or to recognise that their athletes might be struggling with their mental health? And if so, what do you think they should be doing? I think when it comes to sport in, in general, we you know, kind of hold our heads high when it comes to physical health care. I think our physical health care, um, especially in our system, was, was second to none. You know, there was always a specialist who could help out with whatever kind of niche problem you were facing. And it seemed like it was a bottomless bucket of resource that could be chucked at that to make you better. When it comes to mental health care, that's where things start to fall short, um, and especially when it becomes clinical. So sports psychology, we're also pretty good at, but when it, but I think to be honest, it's probably a bit of a dirty secret that most sports psychologists actually spend most of their time kind of sorting out your personal life more than they do performance anxiety on the track or anything like that. But there's been a lot of, I'd say there's been a lot of kind of lip service in the in the British system, particularly about how you know it's okay to talk and it's okay to share. But my experience was anything was anything but. It was it was horrific when I shared with with my team. Um, and again, you were faced with immediately losing your career because in in our system, you know, say if you don't like the culture or the setup of the team, we're not professional sports people. We can't move to a different club or a different team and try out and see how that works. There's one option. And if you're, uh, you know, a square peg trying to get into a round hole, it's going to be pretty, pretty tough. But there needs to be, uh, you know, contractual and systemic change within the British system. I think the athletes are continually seen as disposable commodities. And there's a real imbalance between the conditions and security that the staff receive within the British system, i.e., pensions, significantly higher salaries, salaries that don't drop off the back of a bad performance. And there's, I think that's something that's become a little bit out of kilter as our, as our uh, system has developed. I think when it first started out and we were pulling out um, amateurs into the professional sports system, they would have taken absolutely anything, but there's plenty of money in the system. And I don't think it's necessarily going to make the athletes feel more secure um, in their position. And yeah, you just end up kind of feeling disposable um, for quite a bit of your your career. And, you know, I don't think this is about making athletes soft. I think athletes are their own harshest critics. They're still going to push themselves as hard as they possibly can. Giving them a little bit more security is going to see them through the bad times. And happier athletes make for faster athletes. So I don't know why there can't be a fairer distribution of um, of resources there. I want to know about this dirty secret, I'm afraid, because I'm I'm on the outside looking in. Yeah, no, I think um, sports psychologists are kind of traditionally viewed as helping people with performing at their peak or dealing with post uh, plea competition nerves. But I actually think a large proportion of their time is actually taken up with relationship issues, external issues in your social life, maybe a bereavement or something like that. Like it's a far more clinical um, societal position than it's maybe seen as from the outside. Josie, is that something you can relate to as a sports psychologist? Yeah, so so people will come and see you with a a clear issue. So I I don't have the confidence I feel I need, or I'm I've got horrific anxiety before I have to go and perform. But actually, when you drill down and when you're working with somebody, it's all those other stresses in their life and those hassles that they're dealing with and all the other things that are probably actually contributing towards that. Or systemic issues such as culture where you don't feel psychologically safe at work. You don't feel psychologically safe when you compete. And then you're constantly trying not to lose 
rather than trying to win. And it changes your whole dynamic and your perspective. So much of the work of the sports psychologist is not teaching mental skills to learn how to be more confident when you get on your bike or on the track, but it's actually helping people build up their own self-awareness, build coping mechanisms, build their own strategies for feeling stronger or more flexible in what they're doing. Mm. And, and Tiana, can you relate to what Karen was saying in terms of the, the level of support or the lack of support that athletes may feel on occasion from their teams or their organisations in terms of mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I think our federation, I can only speak to USA Track and Field, and at to some point, USOC does a horrible job of making its athletes feel like they're valued as humans over just the performance. And one uh, very clear example of this is like the benefits we get. The USA Track and Field has tiers where they, you know, hand out stipends and you qualify for health insurance. But the tier that gets access to health insurance is are the Olympic medalists, the people who have already made it, the people who probably have the sponsors and can afford their own health insurance. Whereas a developing person, the one trying to break in, doesn't get any help at all. And then we get those we get those yearly, those annual emails. It's like, hi, you're now tier three because you did not make this team or you did not do this. And so then you lose your health insurance because you didn't perform well enough. And so there's very much like my value to my country or my team is tied to this performance. And we're in a sport. You're going to lose. It's inevitable. Like it's going to happen. So why do we put our athletes in a situation where they're suicidal when they lose in a situation that's inevitable because they now no longer feel like they might not be able to pay rent or have groceries or aren't important to the larger organization. So what they need to do is a better job of helping us sever our identities as people from the performance as athletes. And there is almost nothing in place beyond we care about you lip service that actually goes the distance to make us feel that. And I think just to give a, to give a, a little bit of you know a solution to this as well. I think when we look at other countries and how they treat their athletes, there's a few more positive solutions out there. Um, I'm a particular fan of uh, the German system, which was born out of the Cold War, where people had to pretend to have day jobs in order to compete at the Olympic Games. But basically every German athlete who represents their country are either in education or a member of the police or the army. So it means that they have full employment rights. They also continue to move up in their respective careers as they move forward. So it gives them a safety net, which means they're not just kind of chucked in the scrap heap at the end of their career or if they suffer a career ending injury. And there's other systems in France, you have to be, uh, you are funded, but you have to be in education. It doesn't matter how slow or how quickly you move, you must do something. And I like those more balanced approaches. I think there's more and more evidence coming out that a balanced athlete is a more successful athlete and an athlete that has a longer career. Yeah, absolutely. We have more value to society than what we're able to produce on the field of play. And those type of programs prove that and also give you, you know, a bit of a higher calling. And Josie, what, what ideas would you have whether for individuals or for the structure of sport more generally, which would assist athletes in separating their self-worth from their sporting achievements and achieving a more healthy perspective. 
So when I sit down with an athlete, straight up seeing them, we will spend a lot of time looking at their identity and who they believe they are. And I have to say, you know, the sticks of rock you get at the beach and you could kind of snap them in half and it would say like Brighton or Bournemouth the whole way through. If you snapped an athlete in half and it only said cyclist or athlete, then actually we've got some work to do because that means every injury they get, every time there's a new change of performance director in an organization, every time they get poorly, they're worried about whether they are still who they believe they should be. And it becomes a real threat. So then you boost up all the anxiety. So actually anything you can do to give people other identities as well. And I loved watching um, Tom Daly at the Olympics this year. Because when we watched him as a little 13-year-old going out to do his diving, we've all known him as just Tom Daly the diver. But now we know much more about his story. And we know him as Tom Daly the diver, who's also a dad, who's also a husband, who is a prolific knitter. But it kind of gave him all these other elements so that if he screws up a dive, it's just he's messed up one dive. It doesn't mean he's a failure as a person. And so the more you can help athletes have other identities and feel like they're more than an athlete and they're more than their performance, that really helps take the pressure off their performances. And then ironically, you actually do better. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think when I was at my worst, um, I started to get treatment from uh, Dr. Steve Peters. I think he asked me in one of our first sessions, he's like, well, what are your values? Like, who are you? Who is Callum? And at my worst, I could, I could really struggle to answer that bar being an athlete or a cyclist. And it's reinforced externally. Like I, I, I feel quite often, I feel, felt quite sorry for when me and my brother would go to family events and some extended member of the family would say to my brother, are you the cyclist? And then he'd have to go, no, he's over there. Because that's, that becomes your whole reason for being. And it makes it really scary when you have when it when it comes the time to detach yourself from that world and, and find some new meaning. So I did a, a whole lot of work to kind of establish, you know, what my value set was, what I offer to society and to my family and to my loved ones, and, and that's when I really started to get better. And Tiana, is there anything you'd like to add about that or anything you've done other than having a broad set of interests to make sure that you don't end up pigeonholing yourself or limiting your perspective? It requires a lot of inner work and a commitment to just exploring all those corners of you and then, you know, nurturing and nourishing them as well. It's not enough to just identify them. You have to actually like as much as we spend time training and getting strong in the gym, you have to pay attention to those other sides of you as well. One of the first things my therapist had me do, which was I thought was largely symbolic at the time was made me rewrite my bios on all of my social media accounts because they said athlete. I took that out. And like, once I took that out, there was like this, like, oh my goodness, I have like 200 characters to write other stuff. Like I can, I can actually be other things. And so it was a really simple, cool exercise to kind of just reintroduce yourself to your, you know, to your fans, followers, friends as more than so like the first word in my social media bio is human like first word I think it takes you maybe three lines to for me to mention oh by the way I'm an Olympian like three lines later so that's one of the things and it requires a lot of work because 
you have to believe it. It has to be true. You can't just go around and say I'm more than an athlete, but have done nothing to actually prove that to yourself or other people. So just commit to exploring those other parts of you. Yeah. I, there's, there's some quite interesting experiments you can play for that external perception as well. So um, before COVID hit, I was, I was freelancing and doing you know, pretty exciting jobs and flying all over the place. But then that stopped immediately with COVID. So I got a, a supermarket job and I told no one my background or what I do or what I've done. And they didn't find out for three months. And it was so interesting because I felt a real security in that position because I knew exactly how I was treated before and exactly how people treated me after they found out my background. So I think it really kind of teaches you to really trust and value people that see the value in you, not in your achievements. So that was quite an interesting little social experiment I had over the last summer. Josie, is, is, is there anything you would add in terms of conditioning or well, yes, mental conditioning that athletes could perhaps build into their training and preparation? in order to try and minimize um, the mental health issues they might be experiencing, the doubts they might be having. Yeah, there's masses. I mean, that's, I guess, what our day jobs are as sports psychologists. And what's really nice, actually, is all the skills that are learnt that will help you in those areas in your sport cross over brilliantly into life. So they work across every area that you're going to. And I teach the same skills to athletes as I do to entrepreneurs or to actors or to lots of doctors actually going through exams and stuff and having to deal with those anxieties. So they work really, really well. And I guess the two big things I really focus on is one is getting to know that voice in your head, the unhelpful voice. So Steve Peters calls it the chimp. We all have our own version of it. But that that threat voice, the voice that's trying to stop you doing what you want to achieve because if you fail, you're no longer who you feel you are. And so when you have that really strong identity, that voice in your head is desperate for you not to achieve because every time there's a risk of failure, you feel like you failed, not just you had an event that went wrong. So we spend a lot of time getting to know what that character is, what it's talking to you, what it says. And then again, as Callum mentioned, we really focus on values of What's much bigger than your sport? What's your real big purpose? What are you using your sport as a vehicle for? So that it's not just about certain competitions. It's how does this give you a platform to go out and do the stuff that's really going to matter to you long term? And what values are you bringing into the way you behave when you're in competition, when you're training? So that you feel much more authentically you when you're doing all of your events, rather than you feeling like you have your home life and you have your athlete life. It's it's you are one and your athletics or your cycling is a really good way of showing those values. And so it means you can always move towards good stuff rather than feeling like you're trying to escape the negatives. I love that. And there's one thing that I talk to a lot of young athletes about because it's been so much time and energy denying that inner voice and it's like those things just come up like you might you might be the most mentally prepared you've ever been like me walking to the starting line of the four by one at the Olympic final. And I will still hear that voice say something stupid. Like what if you false start having never false started in a professional meet in my life, that voice comes up during the Olympic final. And what I learned is really cool. You can do, you can, you can actually tell it to shut up. 
<laughs> you can actually engage with that voice. And I know that people are like, what are you saying to yourself? It's like, sometimes I'm just like, ew, you're an asshole. <laughs> and then I move on. Like, I just move on and do what I'm supposed to do. Instead of beating myself up for having that thought, I'm just like, I treat it as if it was just some person outside of myself, you know, being a hater. And then I just deal with that and move on. So there's so I call it mental hijacking because that's like the way I kind of get in there and tinker and tweak, tweak my settings because I'm I'm a head case. I deal with depression. I com- go completely nuts during training or at a competition. But I've learned to hear that voice. Like Josie was saying, I, I've learned how to interact and engage and respond in a way that serves me so that I can get out of that situation whole. That brings this episode to a conclusion. We hope that you've enjoyed it. For more information on athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, morgansl.com. If you're interested in signing up to our mailing list, or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news pieces. We hope that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.